HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company, America's leading salt maker. Learn more at jacobsonsalt.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-S-E-N salt.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we find out how Brexit could be changing the way that Brits eat. If you're not getting your food from the European Union where Britain gets 30% directly, well, where are you going to get it from? As I put very succinctly, bye-bye fresh peaches from Italy, hello tinned peaches from Florida. Bye-bye fresh oranges, hello tinned oranges. Bye-bye free-range beef, hello hormone-injected beef. Tune in to hear about the UK's struggle to stabilize its food system on Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, February 12, 2020. This is the 241st episode of the series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an outstanding New York City restaurateur with a family of restaurants, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to find your happy place. Or better yet, find your happy places, as why just have one? Forget what anyone else thinks and discover what makes you feel good and most content. Maybe it's in the kitchen, or being in nature, or reading a book in a cozy corner, or baking a pie. Or perhaps, if you're like me, it's dining out at restaurants and traveling the world. Whatever it is, embrace it and make it your own, as we all deserve to be happy, as life is too short not to be. So seek happiness. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really 
excited and honored to have my guest with me in the studio. It is Gabriel Stillman. He is the founder and CEO of Happy Cooking Hospitality, which he founded in 2009 and includes restaurants Joseph Leonard, Jeffrey's Grocery, Fedora, Fairfax, Bar Sardine, The Jones, Simon and the Whale, Studio, and George Washington Bar at Freehand, New York. Gabriel spent years working in local restaurants in Madison, Wisconsin, while attending college there, falling in love with the restaurant industry and meeting many of the people who would later become a part of his happy cooking family in New York City. He has built a reputation for opening lively neighborhood restaurants, largely in the West Village, that make people happy. And among many accolades he's received, he was named Restaurateur of the Year in 2012 by Esquire magazine. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm already feeling happy. <laughs> All right. And you also, your PR tip was find your happy place. Yes. Perfectly thematic. Tied it, tied it in. I did have a moment the other night when I was leaving a restaurant solo, and I just I just was really content, and I, I had this happy moment, and I was really feeling, restaurants are my happy place. Um, and then I was thinking about you coming on the show and that your company is, you know, happy cooking hospitality, so it all tied together. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, we, we uh, you know, kind of think happy cooking captures the dining room and the kitchen side. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully the dining room team makes you happy, and we do a lot of cooking. You do do a lot of cooking, and you have a lot of restaurants. I want to I want to start though with a little of your background and cooking or when you went to not cooking or working in restaurants when you're in Madison and and how did you how did you get into the industry and what grabbed you about it? Sure. Um, my entry into the industry is I, I I know that it's similar to to millions. I was as you mentioned, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and that is not where I grew up. I grew up in Fairfax, Virginia. And so I had out-of-state tuition in the beginning. And I was in a place that I needed to pay for my own tuition. Uh, my, my parents, God bless them, I love them, and they, I never really wanted for anything as a kid, but they didn't have enough money to pay out-of-state school. So like a lot of kids, I needed a night job. Well, I mean, you know, I needed, mm-hmm. I needed a job, right? I guess by default of if classes are during the day, you need then a job at night because you can't work during the day unless you take night classes. And as it all worked out, as I was in school during the day like everyone else, and then I got a night job. And when you're 18 years old and you're looking for a night job, I mean, the the, the reality is, is it's not like there's this whole world of evening employment out there you know i mean i guess you, you could get into custodial services you could get into sanitation uh you could be an overnight security guard you know or you go work in restaurants mm-hmm. it's <laughs> and you know i was 18 so i naturally found restaurants as i can i can go to school from nine till three nine till four and then i can go work at a restaurant from five till midnight i'll do that and i started my first job was in the kitchen and from being in the kitchen, I saw that waiters were coming in after me and leaving before me and making more money than me. And at the time, restaurants were a means to an end. It, it was not like it was utilitarian. It was my job to pay for tuition. 
it wasn't, I still believed I had a different future in my life that was not going to be hospitality. So, uh, if, if the means that I needed was make as much money as possible, then great. I should get out of the kitchen. I should move to the dining room. I can make more money faster. That was like, it was logical to me at that, at that age. And so I transitioned and, you know, I started on the bottom as a busboy, and became a waiter. And then I wanted to transition to the bar. And so that transition was as a bar back. And then from bar back became a bartender. And all of that kind of started to happen. And along that path and along that journey of working all these different positions and working at a couple of different places in Madison, I found a lot of community. I found community within my colleagues. I found like this other family, which was my fellow waiters and bartenders and the manager and the cooks. And we became like a tightly knit group. I then also kind of found this greater family, which was the other restaurants and bars in Madison. And it was, I would see the bartenders of this bar, the chef of that restaurant on their either after their shift or on their day off, they would come to the place that I worked and I'd make them drinks. And then they would say, Oh, you know, when you're off, you should come visit me. So I started, you know, really falling. Mm-hmm. I, I would go visit them. And there was always this warmer reception of he's one of us. Like he works at Momar. like, Oh yeah, come on, let him cut the line or, Oh, let me send you out an extra appetizer. And it, it, it made me feel special. It made me feel awesome. And along that path, you know, through four years of working uh, in bars and restaurants in Madison, I kind of fell in love with it. And it got to the place of, huh, maybe I want to do this when I graduate. Maybe, fuck it, I don't want to graduate. Maybe I should just drop out (laughs) and just try to do this. And ultimately, my mother convinced me to stay in school because she believed inaccurately that if I got a college degree, it would increase my chances of getting a bank loan. I graduated and I realized that that paper degree does not help a bank invest in restaurants. Interesting. Yeah. But when I graduated, I I set my sails for New York. And I thought, I'm going to give this a shot. Let me try to open at the time, let me try to open a bar. If it fails, I'll go to what I, I got my degree in history and poli sci. And my thought when I got into college was I wanted to be a teacher. My mother's a teacher. My aunt and uncles are too, like lots of, te- lots of public school teachers in my family. And so I was like, I'll try to run a bar. If I fail, then I'll go back to being a teacher. And here we are 17 years later and I have failed and I've succeeded in restaurants, but overall, I haven't gone back to teaching. I've just stayed in restaurants. No, you, you've, you've, you definitely um, have been successful. Figured, figured out a path in an amazing path in this crazy industry, and you found community, and you, you've created community. I mean, it's, it's hearing your story or background. It, it completely makes sense to what I know about what you've built here in New York City. So when you came to when you when you moved here. Um, I know you also, you, you were part of, uh, the little owl or market table, those guys. Was that, when did you open your first place? So 2006 when I opened the little owl. Okay. That was my first place. Um, 
I had met my old business partner, Joey Campanero, back at a restaurant called Pache that opened in Tribeca. And that restaurant was only around for a year. But at the time, Joey was the executive chef and I was a bartender there. And when that restaurant went out of business, we were kind of looking at each other and saying, hey, Joey, I could go get a job as an executive chef somewhere else. I could go get a job as a bartender somewhere else. But here's another idea. Why don't we open our own place? And that led to the little house. So I was 25 when that opened. And that was my first restaurant. It's special. I mean, it was, it still, it was, it still is. Um, really, I don't know. I just, when I think about it, I, I, I feel warm and fuzzy. Like it just That's has a, a good feel. Yeah, it really, really, it is. And so then you went on, um, what led you to, and I know you were, you had the little Wisco mm-hmm. name or community and mm-hmm. you went on to open Joseph Leonard. Mm-hmm. What's the question? Uh, what prompted that? How did, and why you've, you've, you built a, you know, you, you opened a lot of restaurants over the years in the West mm-hmm. village. Mm-hmm. So what was it about the West village that drew you in? And then when was it time to, um, open a place separate from your experience at the little owl? Okay. Let me try to answer those as two separate <laughs> questions. Okay. I think how it was the West Village was purely coincidental and circumstantial. It literally was in both finding the little owl and finding where Joseph Leonard is was, I was not looking in the West Village. I was looking across Manhattan and those were places that became available and, you know, emotionally spoke to, you know, that inner voice saying, this is, this is a good spot. This feels good. Let's do something here. Um, it could have just as easily been in another neighborhood. It's purely coincidental that the places I found that I fell in love with were in the West Village. So that's the first part. The second question, what led to going out solo? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that right? Yes. So uh, on the heels of the success of The Little Owl, I ended up opening a second restaurant with, uh, with my former partner, uh, market table. And we, we had those two restaurants. And when we started in business, we were very good friends. And as happens, our friendship deteriorated. And, you know, we came to a place of, we're not, we're not such great friends now. This isn't as fun on a personal level as it used to be. So, you know, what are we going to do? Are we going to just be, you know, in an unhappy marriage and just stay wed to one another or should we get a divorce? And it was very clear. It's like, we're young. Like I don't need to stay in an unhappy marriage. You don't need to stay in an unhappy marriage. And so in the divorce, you know, it was one of us gets the restaurants and one of us gets money. Yeah. We talked that out. I was like, you have the restaurants, give me money. And so that's what we did. I took a check. He took the restaurants. And then I knew, all right, well, let's put one foot in front of the other. Let's move forward. What's next? Well, I have confidence that I can do this. 
Little Owl and Market Table are doing well, and I believe that I had something to do with it. Oh, for, certainly. Yeah, I, I felt that. So then I started looking for places. And along came Joseph Leonard. When I was actually trying really hard to avoid the West Village, because I didn't, it, it's, it's beyond ironic that my first solo place would be two blocks away from my, like, the Little Owl, but it just happened. I was in a taxi driving by, and I saw a sign that said store for rent by owner in the window that is now and been Joseph Leonard for the last decade, and I thought, oh, that's a, that's a great corner. That just broke down the number. Called and viewed the space, and from there, obviously, we, we made a, I made a deal with that landlord, and we've been there for over a decade now. And then from there, everything kind of just dominoed. The place that is now Jeffrey's Grocery is directly across the street, as you know. And the way that that came available was, you know, when we opened Joseph Leonard, there was a business there. It was a veterinary clinic. And we were fortunate enough at Joseph Leonard to be busy. And the restaurant had long waits, and I was bartending six nights a week, and eventually the veterinary clinic went out of business. And one night I'm bartending, and I saw a sign that went up, store for rent by owner. And I thought to myself, well, what are we doing every night here? Gratefully, I just knocked on wood for the audience that can't see. I think I heard it. Right? Did you all hear it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, gr- gratefully, um, we had long waits at the restaurant. And what we were doing every night is we were taking people's names and numbers, and we were encouraging them to go and pass time at Kettle of Fish or at Wilfie and Nell mm-hmm. or at uh, Highlands. You know, these, these bars right. that were a block away. Go grab a drink very close, and then I'll call you when it's ready. And we thought, wait a second. We could open our own waiting room. Let's do that. Let's send everybody across the street to have drinks while they're waiting for Joseph Leonard. And you know what? Let's give them oysters and shrimp and crab claws raw bar because that's like a great starter. It actually mm-hmm. start your meal with some raw bar, have some wine, have some beer while you're waiting. And then we'll call you. Wouldn't that make sense? We're sending people to all the other places. Let's send them to ourselves. And that's how Jeffrey's came to be. And then Jeffrey's went through several iterations to being a awesome seafood restaurant raw bar that I'm super proud of then what followed that was Fedora Dorado herself the the woman mm-hmm. the matriarch of the Dorado family was 89 and ready to retire from running Fedora which she ran from 1952 to 2010 and they felt that there was a lot of synergy between Fedora and her story and my then well, I guess at that time, we had, I, I don't know if I was married yet to my wife or engaged, but, you know. I don't know either. I, it, it, <laughs> it, there, it, was, it was in that yeah. year, right? And for the Dorado family, Fedora lived on the top floor of this brownstone, 
and she had a restaurant in the basement that was named after her. And she ran the restaurant and lived upstairs. At the time, my wife and I lived above Joseph Leonard, and we worked together in Joseph Leonard, which was named after my two grandfathers. And they just felt like, wait, there's this couple that lives and works above their restaurant that's named after family members. My mom lives, you know, above the restaurant that's named after her. And so the Fedora's son, Charles, and his wife, Marilyn, reached out to Gina and I, and we began conversations about, would we be the next stewards of Fedora? And we were never looking for that. And that came to us. And so on and so forth. And then Minetta Lane came to us from the landlord. And then where Sardinas came to us from the landlord. And we've been blessed over the years. The Jones came to us from the landlord. Where every subsequent restaurant, we've been approached by the landlord. Well, it says it says a lot about your operations, what you're doing. And there's something about... I don't know. Your restaurants are, have a very special, warm feel to them. They're very welcoming. They're very neighborhood friendly. Um, Thank you. Yeah. No, you're welcome. It, it. It. I. I just when I think I'm like running through my head the different spaces and and they just they feel good and and you've been able to create that and create different um, different concepts as well. I was thinking we we need to take a break, but. Um, Maybe we'll come back and we'll play the question I have for last week, which you've pretty much answered most of it, but we'll play it back. But we'll take a break first and then we'll keep talking. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Jacobson Salt Company. Jacobson's flake and kosher sea salts have garnered worldwide favor for their beautiful presentation and pure taste. In addition to an extensive assortment of pure sea salts and infused sea salts, Jacobson Salt Company also produces a line of salty confections, honey, cocktail salts, seasonings, gift sets, and other pantry staples. Harvested from the cold, pristine waters of Neatarts Bay on the Oregon coast, Jacobson Salt Company is a favorite amongst professionals and home cooks alike. Founded in 2011, Jacobson Salt Company's mission is grounded in craftsmanship and community, maintaining the vision of providing the very best cooking ingredients, from hand-harvested sea salt to single-origin honey. More information on Jacobson Salt Company and their extensive line of products can be found at jacobsonsalt.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Gabriel Stolman. He is the founder and CEO of Happy, Cos- Happy Cooking Hospitality, which includes restaurants Joseph Leonard, Jeffrey's Grocery, Fedora, Fairfax, Bar Sardine, The Jones, Simon and the Whale, Studio, and George Washington Bar at the Freehand. So... As I was saying during the break, I need a five-hour show or plus to go through everything with you. But let's um, let's play back my question from last week. I had on Melissa Ben Ishai. She is the founder of Baked by Melissa, the New York City-based brand famous for its handmade bite-sized cupcakes and treats. And this was on episode 240. So um, here's her question 
for you. For me specifically? For you. I asked oh. her to ask you a question. All right. Game on. What's your vision for each one of those restaurants, and how do you decide on a unique menu to set each one apart? I know. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, I mean, uh, in the in respect of time, getting trying to explain what is my unique vision for each restaurant. I mean, we would need hours and oh, hours need more to, like a, to a, answer a two day that. Show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I I, I often spend six months to a year in ideation of each concept. So let me see if there is a more abbreviated way that I can approach the question. And Melissa, thank you for uh, uh, a pretty substantial, deep question. I so, know, I didn't have to prep for the show. We just could have gone with that question. <laughs> um, I would say generally where the ideation process uh, begins with is I have a running list uh, that I keep, you know, in my computer of concepts that I'm inspired by that I would like to see come to reality. Uh, currently, that list is longer than anything I'll ever be able to actually create. Like, I must have 75 to 100 concepts I would love to build, but I know I would be blessed if I get to build another five. Um, so... I have all these things that I want to do. And where do these ideas come from? Most often they come from travel, right? And as I travel domestically or internationally, I, I, I see things that I sit there and I go, wow, man, that would be amazing to do my spin on that. It would be amazing to do my spin on a diner. It would be, my, it would be amazing to do my spin on an Italian trattoria or on a French brasserie, or I would love to have a Spanish ham bar, you know, and it's like, I would love to have a New England seafood clam shack. Like, I would love to have a New Orleans style restaurant. I mean, I have all these things that I would love to do. And so then what generally follows is the location that becomes available. So uh, I, I think that there are are these trigger points, right? There is something that you're really passionate and excited about doing, right? A concept. There is a location that you're fired up and you're like, this place is amazing. I want to do something in this space. Or there is a partner, right? There is an individual uh, that you sit there and say, this person inspires me, Right? Uh, I, I want to do something with this person. I love their cooking. I love their hospitality. I love their, their creativity, whatever, right? I believe that ideally all three exist. And if they do, then you should start planning your next restaurant. At minimum, two of those three need to exist. So at minimum, like I could have a concept and a chef that I really want to work with on that concept cool, let's go look for a space. I could have a chef and a space. Cool, let's figure out the concept. Yeah. You know, um, I could have, you know, the, the, the concept in the space. Let's go find a chef. Ideally, all three. And I keep saying let's find the chef because I'm not one, right? And generally what we do involves food. And so that, that's not to be limited only to concepts, you know, that, that, that are food oriented. Uh, it's highly possible that one day we'll want to do a business that has no food. 
But I think a similar equation will still exist. So then the next part, I think if I understand the question, is how do you go about making them unique? And to me, that gets a little bit into, you know, a, a chicken or egg debate, which is I currently, to date, and I, I'm careful with my choice of words because I want to leave myself open to change my mind down the road, but currently to date, I have not been interested in repeating a concept. So everything that I've done has been new. And to me, I think that is the only way I can relate that is like a musician or a band, right? And I, I don't know how to play any instruments and I'm not musically inclined, but I do believe, you know, you take you, you take a band, we'll, we'll use the Rolling Stones as an example, or the Grateful Dead or, you know, whoever you like. You get into the studio and you record an album and the, the that album and those songs and those lyrics and that beat and that moment, that reflects what's influencing you then. And hopefully you make a great album and at some point you're inspired to go back into the studio and when you go back into the studio you're not thinking let me record paint it black again you got new songs that you want to play and sometimes with some bands their sound changes and evolves over time and you know you've you, you got one one album that maybe sounds a little bit more jazzy and one that sounds a little bit more rocky and one that sounds a little bit more psychedelic, especially when you think about a group like the Beatles, right? Like, you know, yeah. where, where, where is the, the Yellow Submarine album in relation to the White album? Like, those are two very different sounds from the same musicians. And so to me, that is the chicken or the egg, which is uh, when I'm choosing to do another restaurant, innately, for me, it's like, I'm going back to the recording studio. It's time to make my next album. I feel like making a next album. I'm inherently thinking about it as a different sound. Right. Would you open restaurants in other cities if the, if the, the situation presented itself? Or do you, are you, I don't know, happy with having uh, this group of restaurants all in New York? The answer to both of those is yes. Okay. I am happy with where everything is right now. I'm super happy that everything is in New York. And if in the future we only stay in New York, I'm content. My wife, my kids, like my my friends, my like we're here. Yeah. Would I do something else outside of New York? I believe in a philosophy to life that is never turn down a conversation, right? I like that. You never... You never know. You never know where it could lead, right? So somebody might propose, hey, do you want to do a restaurant in the Bronx? And I'll be like, I don't think so. I'm inclined to say I probably don't, but I've never met you. Let's have coffee. And then you're having coffee, and then what comes out of it is, well, yeah, I've got this new development project in the Bronx I'm really excited about. It. And you go, all right, well, let me see. But wait, you know what? Thanks, but it's not for me. Okay, well, I have this other thing I didn't think you'd be interested in. I got this little building that I own in Brooklyn. Well, what little building? Oh, it's like I'm doing this whole new development in Bronx, you know, brand new glass tower. Yeah, I'm not interested in that. 
oh, you've got a little brownstone in Brooklyn. Oh, well, I'm glad we had coffee. That right, actually is right. interesting to me. So to me, um, those conversations could lead to something very exciting in another city. I think what would be a, a requirement for me to do anything that requires getting on a plane would need to be a there would need to be an operational partner that is based in that other location because those kind of th headaches like the air conditioner breaking or the refrigeration going down or you know like the the, the delivery didn't show up you mean that, those things happen <laughs> that needs an on-site partner Right. That needs that needs somebody that's there to solve and address those kind of issues. And those issues happen all the time. And I'm comfortable managing them here in New York. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to be trying to get the plumber to show up in Minnesota. Yeah. I need I need somebody need I need somebody right. in Minnesota who's a who's incentivized as a partner say when this goes down I, I I'm I'm the person for that right so answer is I'm happy if we stay in New York I'm wide open to conversations they need to inspire me they need to add if they're going to be something that takes me away from my family mm -hmm. it needs to add much more than extrinsic value money's not enough it needs to add a lot of intrinsic value because intrinsically, like, it, it has to fulfill my heart because you're taking me away from my kids and my wife. Right. So I, yeah. like, I, better, I better fucking love what <laughs> I'm working on. So before we take one other break, let me ask you, what advice would you give to someone who wants to be a restaurateur? A lot of a lot of advice I'd give to somebody that wants to be a restaurateur to try to somebody's once answered that on the show saying don't do it. <laughs> I, would, I would never say that. I think that's yeah. I think that's asinine advice. Sorry, uh, I don't know who said that, and so don't tell me. Um, but it's like it was a joke when yeah. they said it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I because mean, it's, it's, I think it, everyone everyone yeah. that does open restaurants, I think it, it grabs you. It, there's yeah. a love for it, even though, you know, yes, yeah. Of so yes. yeah, but it was, it was said in, have, in do humor. I have, do I have stressful months? <laughs> Fucking yes. Overall, does it add value to my life? Absolutely. So, uh, I would say my advice is don't let pride or ego cloud your, cloud your vision. Don't, don't be stubborn. Listen and observe, Right. Mm -hmm. and be willing to pivot be willing to change you had this grand idea of what you thought was going to be a perfect concept and it was for some time and then it wasn't that's okay what would be foolish would be to dig in your heels and drive your business out of business be willing to pivot and i say that because i've pivoted a lot in my career right you know fairfax is really successful now it was perla you know, uh, Bar Sardine is really successful now. It was Shea Sardine. Jeffrey's Grocery is really successful now. It doesn't have a grocery store anymore. Um, I've been willing to say there was this other idea that was first. Mm -hmm. And it worked for some period of time, and then it didn't. And, okay. 
Yeah. What can we do here? You know? And so I think that's really, really important is be willing to pivot and be willing to change. I think that's excellent advice. And yes, I've seen you do that. And, and, uh, it's, yeah, you're, you're pretty amazing with what you've, what you've, what you've built. I have to say. I've had a lot of help. (laughs) Thankfully I have a phenomenal team. Yeah. I love my team dearly. That's awesome. Shout out to all you out there. You know who you are. And on that note, let's take another break and we will come back and we'll play my speedrun game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Gabriel Stoneman, and it's time for my speed round game. So this is the part where we're going to go. We're going to go lightning fast. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll see how that works out. Word association. Um, I'm going to name two or more things, and you get to pick your preference. That's mm-hmm. how it works. Okay. Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat in. Wine, beer, cocktail, mocktail, or champagne? Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Mm. I wish a society with all-inclusive could work, and I hope that it does one day. Currently in New York, it is not viable at the moment as I've tried myself and failed. I hear you. We'll see. We'll see what happens in the future. I, mean, I, I, I literally was on the trenches and in the front battle of that and yeah. lost a lot of money trying to be a part of that motion. But next question. Next question. Longer discussion. Cheese curds, beer brats, fish fry, chicken bouillah. We're going to repeat those. Did you say cheese I curds? I said cheese curds beer brats? or beer brats. Brats. Or fish fry or chicken bouillah. Okay, I would say brats. Okay, I had I did look this up, and I guess I could go on and on. Oh yeah, these yeah, are no, 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 these no, are no. popular Those are Wisconsin, Wisconsin foods. Those are Wisconsin staples. If anyone that doesn't is, know where I'm going with this, that, that is the food pyramid of Wisconsin. <laughs> and you know, it, it, it was a. I'm gonna go with brats. Okay, brats. A few more. I have hat or no hat. Definitively hat. Yeah, you're a hat guy. I am. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan or Brooklyn? 
for what? Uh, 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 where one lives, where one dines, where some people think I'm asking a, a about cocktail. the drink. Yes, it's this is interpretive. Because then I was going to say, what's, what, what, what is a Brooklyn cocktail? Is what was going to be my follow up question. It's um, uh, however you uh, want right. to interpret it, but I was more going with the boroughs. Okay, so this is a difficult one. So really, all that, and this is the one. Okay, well, yeah. this is the last one, so you can you can. It's a very hard one. Okay. So, number one, at its core, I don't like the divisiveness of the question. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) At its core, I refute the question that one needs to choose a side. That being said, I've lived in New York since 2003. The entirety of my time living in New York, I have lived in downtown Manhattan. All of my businesses are in downtown Manhattan. So... For the last 17 years of my life and all of my professional career and all of my marriage and dating and romance in Manhattan, that being said, my family and I are moving to Brooklyn in the summer. Ooh. So ask me the question 17 years again, and I'll tell okay. you that I've now split my time more evenly. But right now I can't say Brooklyn purely because I haven't spent as much time in Brooklyn. But, Fair, but that's, and that's, and and I I got the scoop that you're moving. So that's all going to change, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's yeah. the game. Yeah. Next next fall, my children will go to school in Brooklyn. So. There you go. I don't know. I'm predict. I I see maybe a a, a few happy restaurants now <laughs> closer to where we are in Bushwick, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see. If if I'm grateful to keep growing our company, I will. I will consider myself blessed. Well, yeah, as I said, it's impressive. Okay, so industry news, I picked out an article that was on Salon, and it was entitled, No One Suspected Me, Women Food Critics Dish on Dining Out for a Living. Different menus for men, a server insisting women don't eat that, women restaurant writers open up. And this was by Kara Strickland. Um. I just thought, thought it was interesting. I don't know. Did you get a chance to, to see the, read this piece? Um, with, To be honest, I read in detail the first half of it, and okay. I skimmed the second half. It was half. long. It, it, I just didn't have enough time to read it. I read the first half in detail, so I feel I'm versed on the first half well, of it, and I've skimmed the second half of it. Fabulous. I have opinions on what I've read. Would you like to share them? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's what you want, is you want well, my opinion on it. Yeah. I think whatever restaurant she went to sounds like an amateur shithole. I'm literally flabbergasted at the notion that a waiter would say, women don't eat that. Like, I mean, I, I've, I've been eating out for 17 years with my wife. Like, with my, I've never heard a waiter say that to Gina. Um, I've never heard Gina come home with a story like that. So I don't know if this was a New York restaurant. Maybe I'm just spoiled by like, by the level yeah. of service that we experience in New York. And maybe I am blind because maybe behavior like that's happening in other parts of the country. But it, I've never seen or heard of that. I've been, I've been trained as a waiter in the city. And like, this is just, it's, it's like backwards hospitality, right? This other notion that she talked about there being two wine lists and yeah. she wasn't offered one. I also like bad operation. Like to me, I look at that and I go, 
I, I have I have a lot of restaurants. A lot. That sounded arrogant. I have a handful of right. restaurants. Um, we don't have two wine lists. Right? Yeah. We have one wine list. So I don't know why you have two. Why would one have two wine lists? And whenever I've been to a place, and I have been to places that have two wine lists, the other what what was very interesting about what Kara wrote was this other wine list had cheaper bottles. That to me is just like I I have heard of reserve lists where on the reserve list is like the bottles that are a thousand to three thousand dollars. It's it's not the inexpensive things. It's the crazy expensive things. And I still don't agree with two wine lists under any circumstances, but I could follow if somebody's logic was we don't want people's perception of our wine list to be that it's crazy expensive. So what we've done is we have our normal wine list where the majority of our selections are, and then we have the separate thing for the people that are uh, not price sensitive. Now, if you give that, you should give that to every table, yeah. right? Or you should write on the first wine list, there is a reserve list available upon request. And then that's something that everybody could see, right? Oh, I saw down here on the bottom, it says there's a reserve list upon request. And then it's it's on you to say you want it. So that shit's crazy. That shit crazy to me. Now, yeah. the other part about just like um, restaurants are unaware of female critics was, I think, a theme she was saying. Again, maybe it's a product of me being in New York. But I'm like, I've always been aware of, there have always been female right, critics. Ruth, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's like, hey, keep an eye out for Ruth. Keep an eye out for Dana Cowan. Keep an eye out Gail. for Kate Crater. Yeah, keep yeah. an eye out right, for Gail right, Simmons. Yeah. Keep an eye out for Tasia. Like, it was, it's, I'm like, I don't know. My, 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 like, my lookbook has always been right. <laughs> perhaps even more women than men are what we're looking for. So, again, I sit there and I listen, I, I, the parts that I read and I go, what I'm reading is a bad operation not something that I have encountered. And I sit there and I'm like, well, uh, the fact that they're not looking for female critics or they don't think that there are female critics. Yeah. I just don't know what kind of operation you are. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, <laughs> no, the, the article had touched on the advantages and disadvantages of being a woman restaurant critic. Yeah. And it had... One was going unnoticed, right? Was it, as an advantage. Yeah. And it had uh, uh, Hannah, Hannah Raskin was, was quoted in it. Uh, Besha Rodell, Melissa McCart. And for me, my, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big solo diner. I go out a lot by myself, travel around the world. I go to, I go to top restaurants. Um, I've, I've, I have never felt, um, I don't know. I, I feel I've been treated very well, um, around the, around the world in my dining. I've also noted to myself that I think, I would be a good restaurant critic because I don't think anyone suspects me coming in. I'm this girl. I'm just like, I'm just here to eat by myself. And mm -hmm. sometimes I've told restaurants in advance, like when I went, like I went to Raza over in New Jersey by myself mm -hmm. and I sat down and I was, I told them I'm about to over order because I was there. I was like, I got bread and butter, pizza. I got all this stuff. It wasn't what probably a, a normal, regular person would sure. come in. But I was there. I wanted to try everything. So sometimes I've I've told restaurants that. And sometimes I just, usually I just go, I have my experience, and then I talk about experiences on the show. Um, so it was interesting for me to read because as, as a woman who dines out 
a lot by themselves, I think, um, I wonder if I'm, I don't think I'm getting different treatment. I just think people don't typically suspect me to be someone who's possibly going to talk about their restaurant on a podcast. I mean, I, I cannot begin to try to assume what your experiences are or, 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 or any, right. any yeah. woman. Um, I would say it's not possible for us, for, for, for operators to have a, a, a lookbook, a photo book uh, of everybody with any sort of media outlet. But I would hope if you were a restaurant critic like we've listed a dozen mm-hmm. women, then hopefully you would be in a lookbook and hopefully people would be looking out for you. Right. I hope our teams, they all have a lookbook right. <laughs> that our public relation firm, you know, gives us. And it's like, here's a photo of a hundred people. Yeah. Keep that in the service station. Whenever it's slow, thumb through it. Try to burn those photos into your head. Keep an eye out for them. It's not keep an eye out for the men. It's not keep an eye out for the women. <laughs> keep an eye out for those faces. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Whatever they look like, if those people come in, those people have a microphone. Yeah. And we need to be aware. And I mean, that's that's the way that we run our restaurants. And that's the way that I think most of my peers run their restaurants. So it sounds like from the bits of Kara's article, and I admit, I skimmed the second half. You, you got, you got the. I mean, the, you're, everything you talked about, touching points that you you made was the, the gist of the article, in my opinion. So sweet. Yes, yes. I'm sorry, Kara, that I didn't finish in uh, great detail the end of it. Um, but I, I, what, what I would say is, number one, I, 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 I always mix up the use of sympathize and empathize, but uh, whichever one is like, I feel bad for your experience that. Uh, somebody chose to not give you a wine list that they yeah. gave somebody else and that wine like that's bullshit i agree with you like call that shit out yeah that, that's that hope <laughs> the fact that a waiter said a woman wouldn't eat that that's some bullshit you should call that out like i am in agreement with kara that's foul behavior i hope that that is not yeah. common behavior and some, of, and some of that, <laughs> even there was a comment about giving the man the check at the table. And I feel like, that. Again, I haven't seen that To me, that's like 20 years 03. ago or exactly. something. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I remember being trained in 03 in New York, even though I already knew how, I, even though I thought I knew how to do my job. I got to New York and every new place you work, I trained. I remember the conversations were whoever orders the wine gets to taste the wine. So if. Right. A woman orders the wine. She's getting the first taste. And I mean, that's the way I've operated. Whoever asks for the check gets the check. These observations to me sound like restaurants that are not, I don't even want to say not up with the times. They're not up with 20 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> like, well. like, I don't know what decade they're stuck in, but like, it's not even the last 20 years of training that, I've been around. I mean, literally in 03, I remember training at Hearth in its second month of operations and Paul Greco being very clear. Whoever orders the wine, tastes the wine. Right. Then you pour clockwise. That's it. You don't 
jump around to women first meant you who orders it tastes it they approve clockwise from there whoever asks for the check gets the check yeah. I, so, I mean I don't know I was taught that a long ass time ago well maybe I continue to teach that way whatever restaurant care is at needs to update their training manual there we go but I More also advice. believe I also believe shit like comes from the top down yeah so good points okay we're gonna roll right into my solo dining experience because we were talking about solo dining experience so mm-hmm. I do share one in every show and so this week, I am going to be sharing my experience at Julia. Here's the rundown. The location, 36 East 22nd Street, Flatiron District, New York City. The concept, featuring a nine-course tasting menu of wood-fired Korean dishes. The owners, hand hospitality in partnership with the chef, Ho Young Kim, and consulting pastry chef, Yoonji Lee. So why did I go? Because it's a new restaurant, it sounded really great. My experience. So I had an early reservation for two that I ended up changing to one. I find this a lot on reser- with making reservations at restaurants online, that a lot of times you can't make one for one. Um, but I called, they changed it to two. I mean, they, I called, they changed it to one. Um, I, I, when I arrived, they were super warm and welcoming. And during my meal, I chatted with my server and the manager, and it was really, really a lovely experience. The The timing of the dishes was nice coming out, and the place had a good energy. So what did I get? So it's a set menu of nine courses. I had, I'm not going to name all the dishes, but it included caviar kim, goon goguma, yellowtail, Korean flounder, dry-aged duck galbi, and there were two desserts, including chocolate infused ice cream and my take was I really loved it and I I'm calling it now that I think this is one of the the best New York City restaurant openings this year I think it's really special um they had the dishes some of them were super simplistic in in presentation this gungo guma it's a it's a baked sweet potato with butter and if you look at the picture of it you'd be like okay I don't I don't know about this but it was, it was just, I don't know what they did to this potato, but it was delicious. Um, one of my other favorite bites was the caviar kim, which was the beginning. And um, Yunji, the, sh- the pastry chef, she's from Jungsink. And uh, I, I love her desserts. And her omija pear was one of my favorites, too. So the ambiance is, it's a 1,700-square-foot space. It's more long and narrow with super high ceilings. And um, it has rustic and vintage touches. It has a bar up front and the open kitchen with the wood-fired cooking in the back. I'd say it's perfect for a solo dinner or date night. Interesting tidbit, Chef Kim is a former the former executive chef at two Michelin star Jung Sink, which is also where I said the pastry chef came from, which is in Tribeca. And the, the restaurant's named as a gift to uh, the chef's daughter, and it means joy in French. So the personal fun fact, I feel I'm seeing a bit of a trend of, of tasting menus around the same price point. This, cost, this meal was $95, not including tax and gratuity. And uh, a restaurant I work with in Harlem, Russell Jackson's Place Reverence, he does a five-course tasting menu for 98 And another new restaurant I'm working with uh, by Zod that's opening in the Greenwich Village is going to be around the same price point. So we'll see if that's a trend. 
And would I go back? Yes, I would. And their website is juyanyc.com. There we go. I'm calling it now. It's a good restaurant. Right on. Right on. Add it to the list. And it's in Flatiron, so it's close to free. Flatiron. Yes. Can hit that up. Yes. Conveniently leaving work one day. Right around the corner. Okay, so time for the final question. My next guest is Katie Button. She is executive chef and CEO of Katie Button Restaurants, which includes Curate, Tapas Bar, and Button and Company Bagels in Asheville, North Carolina. Gabriel, what would you like to ask Katie? What is your favorite dish to order at Buxton Hall Barbecue? And is it all that? Wow. I love how specific that is. Have you been there? I have. Okay. I haven't been to Asheville. This is in Asheville? It is in okay. Asheville. Absolutely. Okay. That's what yeah, I was yeah. assuming. It, so Buxton Hall, uh, I don't know if it was three years ago or four years ago, but uh, three years or four years ago, uh, it made Bon Appetit's list of 10 best new restaurants in the country. Sounded familiar. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think okay. it's, well, I don't, I want to hear what Katie has to say. I'm going to find out. And exciting. I'm, and I'm also. Oh, go <laughs> What do you think of the Biltmore Room? Or the Biltmore, like, palace in Asheville? I will ask. All right. I am going to the Philly Chef Conference uh, in Philadelphia. It's on March 1st. I will. This is where I will be interviewing Katie. We're doing a live pop-up of Heritage Radio there, um, and then I'm going to play back this show a couple days later on March 4th, so you all can tune in then, um, and just, I'm going, just so you guys know, the next couple weeks, uh, I'm traveling, I'm taking, uh, I'm not going to have any live shows, we're, we're probably going to start broadcasting shows from host Summit Plus Social, because we have those panels, um, so you can stay tuned for that, and follow us on social media at All Industry to get updates. Thank you so much, Gabriel Stolman. Thank you for having me. Thank, I, um, thank you, thank you for sharing your stories with us, and I, I'm a big fan of everything you do, and I can't wait to see what you and your team does next. Thank you. Super grateful. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So my guest today has been Gabriel Stoneman. He's the founder and CEO of Happy Cooking Hospitality, which includes Joseph Leonard, Jeffrey's Grocery, Fedora, Fairfax, Bar Sardine, The Jones, Simon and the Whale, Studio, and George Washington Bar at Freehand, New York. His website is happycookingnyc.com, and you can follow him on social media at Gabe Stoneman. Did I miss anything in that list? No. Okay, good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can follow us, as I said, at All Industry and at, and follow me at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR. Facebook page is All in the Industry. Website's BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as well. Thanks to my engineer, Amanda, and again to Gabriel. I'm Sherry Bayer, and thank you all for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. 
I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.